0: The following Downstage Center program was originally broadcast in May 2007.
1: Welcome to Downstage Center, a presentation of XM Satellite Radio and the American Theatre Wing. I'm John Von Susten, Program Director of XM28 on Broadway.
0: And I'm Howard Sherman, Executive Director of the American Theatre Wing.
1: Today we are joined by the creators, the two men who wrote the scores for a number of very well-known Broadway shows. The current show, The Pirate Queen, La Miserable, Miss Saigon... Martin Guerre, which was not a Broadway show, but did tour in this country, and a show that ran only in France, as far as I know, La Révolution Francaise. We'll get into all of that later, but let me introduce Alain Boubliel and Claude-Michel Schoenberg. Gentlemen, welcome. Welcome to the Downstage Center. Good morning. Good morning. I mentioned uh, The Pirate Queen, which is currently running here in New York at the Hilton Theatre. It's a story about a legendary Irish chieftain named Grace O'Malley, who lived in the 16th century in Ireland, and it is a, a sweeping saga that takes place over many decades. Why don't you tell us a little bit about how you came to the project and a little bit more about the show?
2: We came to the project for the first time. It was not our own idea to turn this story into a musical. It came from... The producers of Riverdance, John McColgan and Moya Doherty, who contacted us with a very kind and sweet letter saying that they wanted to do a serious musical. And although they knew that we usually don't work on someone else's project, they still wanted to take their chance and propose to us to read something about their patrimonial heroine, Grace O'Malley. Uh, this letter was also saying, in case you don't like it, we will drop the project. We will do it with you and with no one else because Les Miserables is our favorite musical of all times. So it took us some time to decide. You know, we we were tempted and not tempted because we knew nothing about Irish history. and, and But no more that we knew about, you know, some details about Vietnam before we touched Miss Saigon. So it had... It has some element which was very exciting. It was the story of a woman who was the first woman who was in her time doing things which you only hear about in modern times. It was probably the first feminist of all times. And not only was she the first feminist of her time in Ireland. But at the same time, there was another woman in England, King Elizabeth, uh, Queen Elizabeth I, who also was fighting men through different ways in order to establish her power in, in, a, in a world of men. And it's this opposition between these two women which probably started us on this project.
1: Well, of course, there are many clans in Ireland, and this particular clan, the O'Malley clan, were seafarers. They they made their living on the sea, literally as pirates in, in, in other means. So the, the show itself has a, a seafaring uh, attitude toward it, because a good deal is set on a ship.
2: Of course, a very spectacular element of the show is that they were called pirates by the English, mainly. But they were one of the few clans which are living, really, by the coast, and were out at sea in order to fight... The English and to protect, you know, their, their own independence. But don't believe that Ireland was a country at that time. It was like several clans, you know, each one having his own territory, who were uh, sometimes fighting each other at the same time they were fighting England. It was a complicated and difficult time, and, uh, you know, it's part of the background of this story.
0: So what is it that specifically made you decide... We will do this. This you said. It's not a project. You don't usually do projects that other people instigate. What was it that that really drew you to this?
3: We just uh, rely on our instinct. I mean, we never been very keen to tell biography of people uh, generally or show it's about a crisis moment in time ta- in a lifetime. But uh, we were exploring the subject. Grace O'Malley the Queen and uh, Love Story and everything and we were still discussing about it. But I I must say I was quite attracted by the Irish aspect of it because it's uh, for a composer it's quite challenging to try to, being a Jewish-Hungarian, to try to write an Irish show. And a good subject brings you Ideas, sounds, vision, and when we were still exploring the subject matter, because for us, what's important is the subject and the book before the lyrics and the music. We must be sure that we have a subject who's going to feed us during many years. Uh, I have already, when I was still very skeptical about the subject, I had already the first 20 minutes of the show, and I played to Alain an overture, uh, and he he, he he thought it was it was very good, and uh, I was still hesitating, but I was still uh, starting to write the music of the beginning of the show. So we thought it was a good sign.
0: In reading the new book about your work, we should do a quick plug for the musical world of Boublil and Schornberg. um It indicated that you, Claude Michel write the music first, and then, Alan, you go to work on the lyrics. So what did you have to do to get into this Irish musical idiom?
3: First of all, we had to write a kind of book and a and, and, uh, storyboard. It's more a storyboard than a script that we are writing, because it's quite visual. We're describing what's happening on stage. And um, once we started to roughly approach the first half hour of the show after I'm trying to, through the music, to tell uh, the story, uh, the storyboard we have been creating together. And it, I must say I was born in Brittany, in the west of France, where there is a strong Celtic culture. And I always loved that kind of very old, ancient, tough, rooted instrument like the pipe, the whistle, the fiddle. And it was bringing me a sense of... Uh, something challenging to achieve and we went to see the river dance show that w- we enjoyed very much with uh, there was seven extraordinary musicians on stage and i was quite inspired by that spirit of uh, very not rock and roll but very hard beat rooted and uh, it's exactly the way we feel uh, the music and the way to express it. So it was very inspiring for me, and I was trying to think about it. I was trying to write a proper virtue for a show. And more or less, a lot of uh, sounds came to my imagination, and I was able to put it on the,
1: I would on think- the tape. I would think the other thing that would inspire you is the the whole Grace O'Malley story, the whole legend, because your shows in the past, La Miserable and uh, Miss Saigon, have centered on strong people, their identity, their personality, and also trying to to move for change, make a change in their society. And this is kind of a, a similar story set in Ireland, not in... France or Saigon.
3: No, I mean, despite the fact that it can be Vietnam, Ireland, or uh, France of the 19th century, Mm -hmm. it's all our show are about human people. Mm -hmm. And despite the fact that they can be extraordinary personalities, what's happening in their life, it's always what 's happening in everybody 's life, if you take even Lemise or Saigon or Pirate Queen, because she she 's in love with a young man Tianan, that she can not marry and they have to wait twenty years before they get together and uh, it 's all I'll show her about the a huge background sometimes the fight between English and Irish, the Vietnam War or the old epic story of the France political France in the nineteenth century, but it 's always but not simple people life but y- very human life that's all we are interesting because we put our human life I must say our family life on life by itself
2: before our work well if I can put it in just in a different way it's our shows really deal I think with ordinary lives people ordinary people living in extraordinary times and that's usually what Allah shows are about.
1: And people who then themselves become extraordinary and they themselves. become
2: extraordinary because mm. they have to upgrade mm. themselves to get up to the events. Mm-hmm. And
3: what I want to point to, because sometimes it's weird I hear about, I must say, dancers or, or creators, we, they have only their work and they don't have a real life outside the work. For us, and that's a very strong common point that we have together, even in, in our work, since 40 years we are working together, that life comes first.
2: Yeah, but and in a way, life feeds our work, mm-hmm. and our work feeds back our own life. That's, that's the interaction. Mm.
0: You talked about developing sort of the libretto before you really started to write the overall piece how much did you try to stay close to the historical record or the legend versus how much did you feel freedom to simply take the bones of this story and make it your own
2: i think it's simple we kept every historical fact in the in the pirate queen is a historical fact which has been respected in in grace's grace o'malley's personal life And in the queen's personal life, we have taken some liberties. We have condensed three or four lovers of Grace of into one and made him into the most important man in her life. And it's a very touching love story because it's a story which takes 20 years before getting to its conclusion. They meet when they are children, fall in love when they are 14, 15, and only marry when they are 50. So it's more than 20 years. In fact, it's 35 years and uh, we did the same with the Queen uh, you know in the, in the life of Queen Elizabeth I there was an important character called uh, Lord Essex if I remember well uh, we turned Lord Bingham who was her advisor for Ireland into someone who had a kind of tentative love story with her in, more or less in the way and he's treated by badly by the Queen more or less in the way that he, she at times treated Essex
0: this is the first time that one of your shows has made its debut in America. It was not done first in France. It was not done first in, in England. London, yeah. So, how was the process different for you in working on this than in than in what you've done with your other shows?
3: From an artistic point of view, there is no difference because we are dealing with artists, with creators. So it's more about the regulation, the rules, the unions, that the approach is totally different. But from an artistic
2: point of view, we are talking about the same language. So dealing with Frank Galati or with Trevor Nunn doesn't make any difference. I'm talking about directors here. Uh, dealing with Eugene Lee, the set designer for The Pirate Queen, or with John Napier, who designed all, all our other shows doesn't make any difference. They are the same incredible creators, you know, and we are very proud to have been working the American equivalents of the English geniuses we've been working with before. Uh, what you the one big difference really is that we've been starting this show as they say on the road, which we've been trying it out. And we've learned a lot from that. I mean, this like was a legendary thing: people trying out their shows, you know, in another town. One, all this doesn't exist anymore because the critics come from New York to wherever you are, as long as you've done something. The internet before. people come. The internet from people start to review the show before you open the show, even in, in in a faraway small spot. So what we learned there is was for ourselves. We really went through a a very exciting period of rewriting and fine-tuning our show between Chicago, where we opened it in the first place, and New York. And that has been something that we had never done before because our show started directly in London.
0: Well, can you talk a little about that? Because, of course, people who are fans of the theater know that there was the Chicago tryout and know that additional creative people were brought in. Richard Maltby, who you'd worked with previously, Graciela Danielle, who had collaborated previously with Frank Galati, came to the show... What were you learning and what, what did you feel needed to be done? First of all,
3: we we, we learned that what we took it for granted, I mean the knowledge of what England was in the 16th century and what Ireland was in the 16th century, it's not at all what we thought for an average audience. They didn't have any clue about what was Ireland, the clans, the chieftain, even sometime when... Queen Elizabeth I was appearing on stage I didn't know who she was so we knew that we have a a lot of information to give to the audience about this period of time and the characters and after that as for every show we realized where we were right, where we were wrong what we have to adjust uh, to be tied to and of course uh, that's why we had to to work, we did uh, before the, uh, even the opening in, in Chicago, we have a long list of what we have to do. But when I talk about the difference between working in, in, uh, in Europe or in, in, in the, uh, the state, that's where the difference, that we didn't have the time to do everything we wanted to do before the opening.
1: What, what have you learned from doing this show as compared to the other shows? Is there anything significantly different? You said essentially it's the same creative process, but it's a totally different concept. You're working with different producers. It's Irish. It's not French. It's not Vietnamese. Is there anything that really stands out about the Pirate Queen? That well, it's always for us. whether we, we have always been touching
2: anyway kind of uh, you know, very specific fringes, of uh, popula- population in our stories, whether it's a young Vietnamese girl, uh, you know, or whether it's a French a bunch of French students trying to mount a revolution in the streets. Uh, even Martin Gehr is even more sectarian than that. Uh, we have always been dealing with a small group of people living in a small community. So that's not unusual. And the pilot is not... A, the, I mean, the place where Grace O'Malley lives, which is that... Small town village, I would should say, of Clue Bay, in 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 Clare Island, in Ireland, uh, is not unfamiliar. What is difficult is always to find what is the universal aspect to what these small people are living through at that moment in their lives and uh, why they are making history. Because we have that historical background, and in that case, this bunch of you know, 100 or 200 people are fighting in order to protect their own country uh, from uh, another country, which has decided that they were just a colony. And uh, so that's where the universal aspect of it. Grace Somali, from just a tomboy, becomes a leader of of her own clan. And soon she becomes someone who fights the English army before having a personal meeting with Queen Elizabeth and sorting out partly, or for s- a short time, this the sort of island which unfortunately has not been sorted out forever as we know.
0: A moment ago, Claude Michel, you said that one of the things that was different for you working here in the US was the time to make the changes that you wanted to make and it's certainly known that your shows as they have traveled internationally in their early stages, changes keep getting made. I'm wondering if you both feel there is more you want to do with Pirate Queen.
3: Not at this stage. What's important for us is that we are watching on stage the show we like. And definitely the show that we have in New York is the show we like.
2: So we are quite happy with the result. But that doesn't mean we will not be changing things in the future, the same as we've been changing things in Les Miserables for five, or six years after the show opened in London. And we've been changing some things in Le Miserable. I'm no, you know, as late as last year, hmm. when before the revival was conceived, suddenly a little idea for tweaking a little scene came up. So, of course, we will be changing things in The Pirate Queen. But at the stage where we are in our mind and at the stage where the show is on this stage, uh, we are happy and proud of what we are seeing every evening. And, you know, watching the people's reaction from the back of, of the house is, is very, very exciting. So you're, you're, you're still kind of tweaking the show, are you? Thinking of where uh-huh. we could tweak, tweak it in uh-huh. the future. But I just don't know. It's just a way of behaving that we have. We always tweak our shows for years after it opens. And we will certainly do the same with this one. Keeps it fresh, I guess. I'm sure, or oh, keeps us fresh.
1: <laughs> <laughs>
2: and
3: That's always been the the tradition of the living uh, theater. Uh, it was the same for, uh, if you want a reference to classical music, uh, Verdi was always uh, rewriting the score each time he had the production of one of his uh, uh, of his operas. But right. in it musical is, uh, theater it's, it's,
2: it's rather new because no shows have been lasting that long before cats or before our, our mm-hmm. shows so it has become easier to do because show didn't like that long before that and and it's something let's say rather new in the last 20 years that you can keep tweaking with your shows after five or six years after they opened
0: I'd like to jump back now and talk about the beginnings of your partnership. You said when you came into the studio today that it's, it's a 40-year partnership. But as I understand it, it was w- not one of those stories where, oh, you met at college and started writing songs together. Alain, you heard some music by Claude Michel on the radio and said, this is the guy I've got to work with? Can you, can you tell us more or less?
2: That? But, you know, we could not do that in college because what we don't have is your traditions. In, in college, in America, you have a strong tradition of music And of musical theatre. So obviously people who have an interest in music or musical theatre meet in college and do either their own band or do a partnership uh, in order to start to write kind of college plays or college musicals. That cannot happen in France where we were leaving because uh, there is... No musical tradition in French colleges, so that's simple. We uh, could have been in the same college, ignoring each other, of course, <laughs> and not playing music <laughs> anyway. You know, because music at that time was not just not one of the the matters in the program. So uh, yes, it was through listening one song on the radio one day. Which What, told were, you, what
0: were you doing at the time that you I heard this? I was
2: working for a music publishing company, and. Uh, uh, just starting after a short career in broadcasting, which was like uh, nine months at the radio station called Europe Number no. One, which was quite famous at that time in France uh, then I was and I'm, you know hired by a music publisher in you know, order to try to promote their songs, and on the side, I was starting to write some kind of lyrics. so when I heard that song by a young girl called I think Patricia uh, who I just liked the song. I know it was unusual. And at that time, I didn't have words to verbalize what my thinking was. But today, I can say that I felt that it was theatrical. Uh, But it's only retrospectively that I can say that. And uh, so I made contact, you know, for the record company. As a publisher employee, I had an easy access to all the record companies and that's how we met and discovers our respective tastes. And discussed. So the,
1: the story, according to the book that Howard cited, was you called the radio station and said, who, who exactly. wrote that song?
0: Yeah,
2: who wrote that song and on what label is that recorded? Uh-huh. And then, you know, it's easy, it was easy enough in Paris to make contact.
0: So you heard it as theatrical. Claude Michel, were you thinking about writing for the theater at that time or were you content to be writing popular music?
3: There was, there was no way to write for theatre in France because it doesn't exist in the musical theatre business in France. So when you want to write music at that time, it was only possible to write pop songs. When I was a little boy, at six, seven years old, I wanted to be an opera composer, but that's something totally crazy. It's, a, it's an utopia in France in the, in the 50s, 60s. So of course the natural way to write songs. I, I had a rock and roll uh, band. I was writing songs for my band, and after I was writing pop songs uh, for singers, being a producer for EMI for for records at the same time. But of course, ne- despite the love I had for uh, for for opera, it never crossed my mind that one day. I can write for for theater and what we knew in those days about the musical, like *Sound of Music*, or even when *West Side Story* the movie was released in France, I thought it was too sophisticated for my technical knowledge as, as a musician to be able to write that kind of work.
1: Well, so Claude Michel, you had a very early exposure to music. Your father was a piano tuner, and as you said, you well, uh, age five or six, started going, attending opera and, and getting getting a, uh, a love for it. But I read in the book that you don't read music. You took piano lessons no, for I years can't and kind do, of faked I, it. I can't
3: read music. I faked it when I had my <laughs> piano lesson during many years because I used to have a piano teacher, and she was playing uh, Chopin, Mozart, and, and I was rushing back home doing exactly what she was playing by here, and of course, the following week, I was playing the tune for her. But at the very beginning, I told her, that I'm not interested in playing other people's music. That I wanted to play my own music. And she told me, J- first, you learn it, and after, you do what you want. And of course, everybody thought it was completely crazy. <laughs>
0: well, let's flash forward. Tell us about how your first major show, La Révolution Française, came to be, because it was something that ultimately got into production in a hurry. How long had you been working on it?
2: Oh, it was, by today's standards, it seems crazy. It was very quick. Uh, The idea, as you may have read in the same book, came to me when I was pacing the streets of New York one night after having seen the opening night of Jesus Christ Superstar, uh, which struck me as something that certainly I could have thought of or, or or imagine, you know, and that's how suddenly the word musical theatre made sense to me for the first time. Uh, The idea of the revolution, I imagined the same night. I cannot tell you why. Just because I thought that it was urgent for me to find a subject for what would be the first musical that I would try to write. Once I would have found the composer, uh... And uh, immediately the idea, because in Jesus Christ Superstar you had all these characters, you know, they were all played by very young people, if you remember, in th- in that incarnation, that first incarnation of the show. They were all played by very young actors and it was a rock and roll score and all that. So at that time I thought we should find something similar and immediately the idea of the leading revolutionaries, you know Robespierre and Danton, and and all these young people who were fighting to redefine the rules of the land at that time, came to me as okay. They could be part of rock and b- rock and roll band too, you know, more or less like the uh, in Jesus Christ Superstar. You have all the disciples, you know, being young rock and roll singers. So uh, I came back, spoke to a friend of mine with whom I had been written, writing some pop songs called Raymond Jeannot, and the minute I said to him, uh, what do you think, we should write a musical, you know, something... He didn't really understand what I meant, but he immediately said to me, let's discuss it with Claude Michel, who at that time was part of the group of people who were like exchanges ideas idea together all the time. And that's how we had, I think, our first serious conversation about writing a musical, Six months after that, we had written 20 songs. And nine months after that, <laughs> the show was on a stage. On a big
0: stage? On a huge stage. Tell, tell us about cause it, because it's <laughs> not that you started in some small theater. No,
2: we started with, it was like 60 actors on stage, 35 musicians in a place of the size of Madison Square Garden. And and that was sold out for, for the length of three consecutive months, which means that half a million people have seen it.
3: Now, and I was Louis sixteen on stage. <laughs> <laughs> and but, but I mean, the process was completely different because, of course, in those days, you used to start by a concept album. Mm-hmm. So I remember in, in one afternoon, we just uh, planned 24 songs explaining the story of the French Revolution. And that's why we... Alain, me, and our two friends, Jean-Max Rivière and Raymond Janot, we were collaborating with, but it's when somebody asks us to put it on stage, and we had to transform the 24 songs into a show, that we realize how well we are collaborating to try to put in a unified work what we have been writing, the 24 songs. That's why we realized that... It's what we like. We discovered that
2: we had a sense of recitative, we had a sense of storytelling, that we didn't want the show to be on stage like 24 songs, which made, by the way, this record was an overnight hit. It's like the kind of record you do, you release, and three days after, the record company calls you and tells you we sold 100,000 copies. So it's kind of miracles that happen from time to time. That's why the show was put on the stage that quickly, because people wanted to bank on that success, obviously. But Cronus is right, we we, only the two of us had this sense of now we are going to turn it into a proper dramatic evening, and that 's why we are still there together thirty eight years later, and the, our two other collaborator, collaborators are still writing pop songs
1: and, and, and,
3: and, and sorry b- right. and by instinct, like James Cameron did for Titanic. Mm-hmm. We didn't write only songs about the history of the French Revolution, but we already invented a love story, of course, between a poor guy and a very rich girl. She is uh, from a very popular uh, background, and she's part of the nobility of of her time. So already we were putting the simple people's story in the turmoil of a huge background, just by instinct because we thought that the only interest of the evening was that love story through, through the historical events.
2: So to see that what will be our take on Le Miserables was already there that, at that time. And this is one of the reason we've when we di- were discussing with Cameron Mackintosh, the producer of Le Miserables and Miss Saigon, as you know, we were discussing, will we one day do the French Revolution? And he said, I don't think we should because it's, it's like a very good draft of what we did later with Le Miserable. Mm-hmm. So that's why we always kept La, la Révolution Francaise being a university play. It's it's still very popular in some American colleges, by the way, and English schools. Uh, but we never authorized a commercial presentation of it being done, and we don't know if we will in the future.
1: Well, you you had seen, um, Alain, you had seen Jesus Christ Superstar in New York. You were inspired by that to, to write this. And I think Claude Michel, you said before that Musical theater doesn't really exist in France like it does in New York or in the West End of London. So, no pun intended, when you were writing La Révolution Française, was this in itself revolutionary, trying to do this in France? It was madness. It was more than
2: revolution. It was complete madness. Uh That's why we financed the concept album. We used most of our friends in the offices where we were working to do some background sing- background singer and we used all of them for the first television that we made and, you know, picked costume for for the archives from the French television which at that time was a huge costume kind of library, you know. Uh, and we, we did that as we could and very quickly, suddenly we found ourselves uh, being asked to put that on the stage. So you can imagine, we... We really jumped from one world to another in a very short period of time maybe that has helped us a lot to survive and take quietly what has happened to us
3: afterwards but what you must understand that when we in 78 we started to write les miserables for the french production we spent two years writing it and all our friends told us that we were completely mad to stop writing pop songs because they say, where are you going to uh, to with that kind of show, like Les Miserables, and it was something totally irrelevant in those days. But the French Revolution, the Révolution Française, was the very first uh, music, French musical put on the stage in France.
0: Well, you talk about the speed with which your first show came together, and Claude Michel, you just mentioned that you started writing Les Miserables in 78. It premiered in France in 1980. That's already a much longer gestation period than you'd gone through the first time. And then it was another five years before Les Miserables was seen in London. Obviously, we know the story of Les Miserables, we, we know of its enormous success. But can you take us back to what that creative process was, getting it on the stage in France the first time and then how it came to be a show performed in English.
3: So we wrote ourselves the first version of the 1980 version in France. It took us two years to write it and to make once again a concept album of the show which was quite successful in France. And the other five years you're mentioning, it's only the fact that now, having musical tradition in France, once the show finished to run, it's the same arena where we did the Revolution Francaise. After three months sold out and more than 550,000 people who saw the show, nobody was interested But what we're going to do, what's happening with us, if we're going to write a new show. Nobody was interested at all. We had to go back to writing pop songs to survive. And... Uh, we were looking for a new subject, but it's only when Cameron heard the record in 83 back in London that he contacted us and wanted us to come to London to write a proper version for international audience.
0: Hmm. So, so it really was, as you say, it was, it was Cameron McIntosh hearing the album. That's so a, then what was the process of taking the show to London from what it, you had done? Then
2: it went quite fast again from the minute Cameron heard it by accident at a friend's house and that friend by the way happened to be a director who wanted to he wanted to produce it and to direct it and uh, the difficult task after that was to convince this director that according to Cameron he was not the right director to direct this show Uh, although he kept some kind of interest in it in the future after that but Cameron wanted to go for a much more ambitious plan and convince both Trevor Nunn and John Caird, who had just done Nicholas Nickleby for the Royal Shakespeare Company in a, in a seven-hour uh, extravaganza, little like Cost of Utopia has been this season is new in New York, he wanted to convince both, both of them uh, to direct Les Miserables and to start it at the Royal Shakespeare, which is what happened. So, really, we started work in 1984 because that all this happened at the end of 83. 84 we started. Uh, first, the first English lyricist uh, was a poet called James Fenton, uh, who collaborated with us in restructuring the prologue, because in France, the Miserables started as at the end of the day, and there was no prologue, because everyone knows the event before the prologue, and you don't need to tell that story, so more or less what Exactly. Michel was describing about what we had to redo about the Pirate Queen between Chicago and, and Broadway. And uh, we then started to write that prologue with James Fenton. Quickly, James Fenton didn't, did, was not... He's a great poet, but was not the person who could handle the three hours of writing that there was to do on the whole show. So Cameron contacted Herbert Kretzmer uh, and asked him if he would write with us, you know, in, I mean, not on his own but in permanent discussion with us and with the directors the English version and uh, he started work immediately and one hour later uh, one year later the deed was done and uh, that's how we opened at the Barbican in 80f- at the end of 85 before transferring the show. Uh, shall I re- remind you that the show got terrible reviews <laughs> when it opened in London and uh, and the, show and, was, here we are.
0: and the show was certainly, I would imagine, much transformed. A new director, a new physical space, it the was, English lyrics. Yeah. So people who saw the show in, in France in, in 1980, if they'd gone to London or saw any of the subsequent productions, the best way pretty stab- different.
2: Yeah, the best way to establish the difference is to listen to both recordings. You have one, the f- French concept album called the White Album, where, by the way, the, the idea of the logo was born. It was the full Cosette with the broom instead of being just her face. But it's the same image. Mm. And uh, by Emile Bayard, designer of the times of Victor Hugo. Uh, If you take, if you listen to both albums, you will see that 70% of the songs are in both albums. What changed drastically was how we structured the show. And I must say that in that department, Cameron's, help and Trevor and John Trevor Nunn and John Kerr's help was invaluable all the way and the show that he's playing now is quite different from the show that was playing in Paris
3: there is no five minutes the same
1: I mean, uh, it means in the same place. In place. Oh, cl- cl- let me show you, uh, I mean, uh, Alan, excuse me, you said that the reviews initially were not great. Let me point out that here it is more than 21 years later. The show is still running in London. It's the longest running musical ever in the West End of London and it's the third longest running musical in this country now in a revival in New York. What challenges did oppose the two of you now working on a show to open in London working in English? Obviously, you brought in you know, Kretschmer to do the English lyrics but you... Folks rewrote the, the the book yourself. What what was it like having to work in a language that is not your own native language?
3: First of all, it was a total discovery for us uh-huh. because we realized that there was a country just across the British Channel <laughs> with a family with a, a whole family of people working only on musicals. We didn't know that. We discovered suddenly that there was a whole business based on musicals. What we were doing in France on our own, I mean, Alain and me, did exist in England, but as a business. We didn't know that. And once we found our family, we didn't want to go back, of course. That was uh, amazing for us to discover that. And the ch- we were it was a wonder time because each time, each day, we were learning something and we were collaborating with wonderful people who were thinking exactly what we thought by instinct when we were uh, working together
2: in Paris. And one important thing is that they had the same respect for us than the respect we had for them. So they thought that what we were doing was invaluable, irreplaceable because we were bringing them a work that they could not have written themselves and in exchange we could learn every day from the most talented people in the world. At that time, we were working, you know, with Trevor Nunn, John Kerr, John Napier, Herbert Cressmer, Cameron McIntosh, to name a few. And, uh, and this was normal life. So even if it had failed, what we have experienced was so extraordinary that it was one of the best times in our lives.
0: As we've already said, as anybody listening to this program knows... Les Mis was an enormous international success, but you have talked about what you learned going through that process and, and really developing the work further in England. How did that experience then inform your next choice and how did you set to work and come up with Miss Saigon?
3: The, it was quite obvious because when we brought, at the end of 86, when we started to think about uh, updating Madame Butterfly into Saigon, we decided to write, as usual, the script, the storyboard, and to do the first act. And uh, as the process we, uh, we used to do, uh, I'm writing the music and I'm writing the lyrics in French, and after I did a full recording of the first act, me alone at the piano singing all the parts in French. And that's what we gave to Cameron McIntosh. it was a little tape. But already there, opposite to Les Miserables, practically 75% and that's where Cameron was totally surprised that 75% of the structure and the writing of the show was already on that tape. When for Les Mis we have to rewrite and to restructure everything because we have been learning so much during the process of Les Miserables we, like a sponge, we were absorbing every day so many information about how to write a show, the rules uh, of the theatre and everything that... For Saigon, I mean, we, we were achieving practically 75% of the whole show after it was
2: only it discussion was new, with It was a new attitude. We suddenly had accepted the idea that we were becoming playwrights. When we were tentative musical writers in France... We came f- with our pop roots, we, we were writing s- songs with theatrical, uh, you know, insights, let's say. Uh, little by little, we understood that a play or a musical is always a play which means it's a story that goes, it's a journey that comes from the beginning of the evening to the end. Whatever the production is going to be, whatever the staging is going to be, whatever the set is going to be, if the story doesn't hold together, there is no evening at the theatre. So, that's what we have learned, and that's what we are trying to put in practice all the time.
0: And we spoke earlier, when talking about Pirate Queen, about steeping yourself in the Irish music, unlike your first two shows, which were clearly French-themed shows, you are now working in in a show that really was international in terms of its mixing of cultures and races and so on. Was that a conscious choice to open up musically, or was it simply just driven by the story that you created?
3: It's only driven by the story. We didn't think in terms of audience where we are writing something. It's only the strongest part of uh, our work. It's the... Uh, uh, it's the script and the story. And at such a point that when we are not succeeding to write good lyrics or good music, we don't try to rewrite lyrics or music. We go back to the book to check where the book is right or wrong.
1: Well, you were both during the Vietnam War you were both in, in your 20s you were I guess living in France at that time yeah. and here in, in this country it was a, a major turning point in our, in, our uh, in, in the United States what was the mood in France and how did that affect you back then and then later as you were writing this I
3: don't forget that we have uh, our Vietnam War too uh-huh. France was well, was, was,
2: a, was it a similar mood in, in France no because
3: we were much younger and was you mean
2: during the American War during the French mm. Vietnam War as you know, the Americans have inherited uh-huh. the French Vietnam War. Okay. And they've decided that they will continue where France had renounced after the defeat of the NBN Fu, which is, by the way, mentioned in the lyrics of the engineer in the American Dream. Uh, so uh, during the American War, we knew everything about what was happening. The same images that you had here were played in France all the time. Maybe with a different take on them. Uh, maybe with a little more criticism as usual. Uh, or um, the more cynicism also possibly, uh, but we lived through the same story and through the same pain, except that none of french of French citizens were there on the field. but it was a war in which France didn 't really allow itself to judge anything <coughs> because they had had the same experience before
1: was there as much conflict between the French people as it was in this country with you know different camps one one camp. Very much it was the not warnings.
2: exactly the same because don
3: 't forget that Vietnam was a colony of France, uh-huh. so France has been in Vietnam for one hundred years. But as a personal experience as a young boy, I never understood the connection between a young French guy of twenty years old dying in a rice field in Vietnam, as I did not understand why a young American boy from Oklahoma as to die in a rice-filling Vietnam or even today as to die in Baghdad. I don't see the connection. I don't understand it. I will never understand it.
0: From Miss Saigon, you then went back to a notedly French story for Martin Guerre. And Martin Guerre, for those of us who followed the musical, somewhat famously has had several iterations in terms of our understanding is that you keep reworking it. As Martin Guerre proceeded in its development, what were the challenges that you faced with with telling that story, and where where do you think it is now? But
3: to to just to be very complete about that rewriting process of Martin Guerre, Anna has been working this morning on Martin Guerre mm. because we have the production opening so in let June me t- in England. Let me tell you why. <laughs> well, that's
2: yeah. why I asked where you <laughs> think you are now. To, to ask to answer your first question. The problem, basic problem from Martin Gerb, is that you are doing with anti-heroes and you are trying to make heroes of, the, of, of a musical theatre evening. And that's not easy. This is not a movie where you can turn Bonnie and Clyde who kill people into heroes and make them acceptable by the audience because you have a lot of tricks in the movie that you can use. This is an evening where you want to turn liars because that's what they do into people who fundamentally are the heroes of that evening because their love is above their lie. So it's a very, very tricky intellectual game that one has to play to turn Martin Guerre into a musical. And at the end, the question is, is is Martin Guerre a good idea for a musical? And it's a question I cannot answer. Some people love that score and that show, and it seems that it's going to become our... uh, catalog item you know it's like it's like the one that goes into repertory and that people play from time to time or will produce from time to time and it could become something which would be very pleased with not a long-running musical but a musical that you update regularly and rethink regularly through the people who rediscover it and on that on that matter, uh, a new production is going to happen in a few weeks in July, opening at the Watermill in London, which is where John Doyle, uh, you know, who re who updated Sweeney Todd, uh, is go- started, and it's going to be done in the same manner, I mean with actors, musicians, and because of that, every time there is a new production of Martin Guerre planned, we take that opportunity to try to rethink it and we found a new way, simple way, to make the suspense, which so many people have told us, why didn't you keep the suspense like in every movie about Martin Guerre, meaning not knowing who is the person who returns from the war. And that's a- an idea that we thought wouldn't sustain on a stage because you know the actor is not the same person.
0: For those who don't know the story, the Martin Guerre story It's Somersby,
2: the movie
3: Somersby. be in
0: America, based. but it is that a man goes off years later comes back and suddenly seems much more wonderful in some ways than, exactly. than the more man manly, left, more seductive, and more is it really him?
2: Exactly, right. that's the whole story. So we have found a way to keep the suspense until the end of Act 1, not necessarily for the audience, but for her, which means in that version of Martin Guerre, the audience doesn't know if she knows or if she doesn't which is a huge impre- improvement on our previous versions. Obviously, when you say a thing like that, it seems simple, but it's like dominoes. You change one little thing here, and you have to redo and rebuild the whole of Act One. So that's what we have been doing. Obviously, in the process, suddenly you discover that you could rewrite a song or you could change a reprise, which what we have done over the last month while we were still tweaking on Pirate Queen. And this morning, Scrooge Michel said, I was working on... Uh, on some last-minute rewrites before it goes into rehearsal next week.
1: Well, on that note, uh, you two gentlemen have two shows running simultaneously on Broadway, the revival of Les Miserables, and, of course, your new show, which just opened at the beginning of April, The Pirate Queen. And Alain, Claude Michel, thank you so much for being with us today on Downstage Center. It's funny how an hour goes past so quickly. Yes, it?
3: I yes.
2: never realized wasn't <laughs> <Alain>. <laughs> Could still, never say it was an hour. It's still
3: amazing that in 2007 you can talk so long. <laughs> it's in, in a radio yeah. show. Thank you for being with us. Thank you. thank you.
0: Thanks for being with us. For the American Theater Wing, I'm Howard Sherman, reminding our listeners that these programs and all of the educational and media work of the American Theater Wing is available online, on demand. For free, from our website, www.americantheaterwing.org.
1: And for XM Satellite Radio, I'm John von Susten for Downstage Center. That is a wrap, and thank you.
0: The American Theater Wing encourages all of our podcast fans to share our programs with friends and colleagues, but we remind you that any commercial distribution, commercial use of our programs, or program modification is prohibited without our express permission. We appreciate your cooperation and invite you to contact us with any questions. Thanks for listening. If you're enjoying the podcasts of Downstage Center, help us in our efforts to share the best in theater with listeners everywhere by writing a review for iTunes or for your favorite podcast directory. Thanks so much.